Hello and welcome to Safer Journeys. I am one of your hosts, Heather. We are here in North Central Illinois at our Safe Journeys agency where we care for and provide prevention to survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And I'm here with my colleague and supervisor and director of multiple programs, <laughs> <laughs> Melissa. Hi, um, I'm the Community Engagement Director with Safe Journeys, and we are so happy to be doing this podcast dedicated to raising children, ending violence, and ending oppression. And um, it's coming into the holiday season, mm -hmm. and so it's just kind of like extra special to say thank you yeah, right now totally. for our listeners. And I'm just like so proud to have this podcast. Mm -hmm. I <laughs> I really am. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times I think of it as one of our prevention strategies, which it is. It's I mean, a, it is for sure. Yeah. But I'm also like, wow, we, we got it started. <laughs> I We both really wanted to do a podcast. Like that was a big deal for us. Like when I first started, we talked about it a lot yeah. and it felt out of reach for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was big, it was a big win and an exciting one. Um, especially since we both enjoy listening to podcasts so much too. Yeah. So yeah, no, we're, we're very grateful, um, to have listeners, to have a platform, um, to share this information. And actually, um, we decided because we were so excited that we're going to do a bonus episode coming up soon, um, where we just talk about a little bit about our background and how we got into this work and the things we love, the things that challenge us. Because we never really, we haven't given the listeners really much of a background and insight into us as people and how we function oh, in yeah. our work environments. Yeah, that's very true. And like so much of our history and purpose are just like left out. And I think it will help listeners understand where we come from. Yeah, absolutely. Be an insight into the world of violence prevention. Yeah. But also, yeah. Well, us as people, as parents, yeah. as, you know, <laughs> yeah. the multiple identities that we um, we yeah. hold. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for yeah, that episode. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we won't be have to prepare very much. Yeah. <laughs> we just show up. It's so true. <laughs> All right. So trigger warning, uh, we discuss topics of domestic and sexual violence. Um, I want to be specific because I know in the past, like we, we say that and then I think some other things come up. And I just want to make sure um, we know today's topic is about children and youth with disabilities. And so what that means for our trigger warning is that um, we will be discussing topics that relate to domestic and sexual violence in relation to children and youth with disabilities. Yeah, this may be a particularly hard one to hear, uh, especially if you're not familiar uh, with the risks um, that young people face being having a disability. So right. this may be, a, it may be a little bit of a gut punch. Right. So if you do need to take care of yourself or stop the episode or come back later, that's absolutely acceptable. Yeah. So, like Melissa said, we are going to talk about children and youth with disabilities. I didn't realize how connected I would feel to this content um, until I was on my way here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right, I am technically an individual who has multiple disabilities. I just don't identify with that ever. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's because it's newer. It's been over the last, like, six or so years. But um, I have uh, multiple autoimmune disorders and, you know, pretty much your traditional de depression and anxiety as well. So I, I do technically hold multiple disabilities and I'm, I'm very grateful to work in a place that accommodates appropriately and compassionately because I know that's not this, the case for everyone. Yeah. So bad news, <laughs> there are 150 million children um, that we know about that have disabilities worldwide. This comes from UNICEF. Um, so it's pretty accurate. And again, this is worldwide. This is not just in the United States. In our United States special education system, we serve over 7.3 million students. And that's as of the 2021 school year. So this could have gone up or down just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I want to mention that the special education system is in place because of um, the IDEA Act, which is the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. Uh, and what that does is essentially 
provide the services to educate young people three to 21 years of old or 21 years of age um, in our public education system in the United States. So there's about 15% overall uh, students who are enrolled in our country's public schools with disabilities, which I feel like is a significant, it's a pretty significant number. Yeah. Um, And of those students, about a third of them have what they call a specific learning disability. And that's going to be something like dyslexia. Um, that just to give you an idea of what that might look like, that's the category they tend to like lump people into is, are you a specific learning disability? Do you have a speech or language impairment? Then they have this like other category and autism and like these tinier categories happen as well. So the second most common disability we're going to see um, in young people in the United States, it states is someone with a speech or language impairment. And that could be a variety of different things, but essentially getting the words out is difficult for whatever reason. It could be an anatomical reason. It could be a neurodiversity uh, thing, but maybe they struggle to pronounce a certain word or certain letters. I know a friend of mine had um, a kid who had something with his tongue that they had to do a, like a little surgery and that fixed the problem. But until it was, you know, taken care of surgically, he had a speech, um, speech impairment. The third most common category is that other category I mentioned, and those tend to be like chronic health conditions or long-term health issues or young people who are going through um, cancer treatment or HIV treatment, things like that. So they're going to have, it's more a health looking at, less, less speech, less mobility, less neuro. It tends to be more like a physical health ailment that maybe they have asthma and they have to miss school all the time. Or they can't go when it's cold outside or those kinds of things. Um, and then the fourth most common is going to be autism. And that's at 12% um, in the 2021 school year, which doesn't feel that big right now. But then I looked back at about 20 years and in 2000, it was only 1.5%. Yeah. So wow. only 1.5% of kids were um, diagnosed with autism in special ed 20 years ago. And now it's 12%. And I think... That's a lot because we have awareness. Um, we have, you know, capabilities to screen kids younger. So we're finding the young people um, better and we're able to provide support for them more quickly. So that's right. great. I think the, the autism levels were probably the same 20 years ago. We just weren't being able to find them. Right. And get them the help that they need. Yeah. And I feel like we have so many more tools to be able to even serve Oh, gosh. Um, young people with autism now. Yeah. There's a variety of the um, like ABA therapy. I actually did that for a while when I was in high school. Um, I worked with a young kid, young guy, Josh. He was great. Um, he was autistic and we did a lot of fun uh, socialize, socializing things. So like one of my, my job was like take out this amazing little dude to the mall and go ride the train, you know, and like help him, like support him. So like with his social development, like did not feel like a job. It was just fun. Like I was just like babysitting is what it felt like. Yeah. But yeah, he's a great little guy. Well, he's not little anymore, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes when we're talking about people who are younger than us, we tend to be like, yeah, little or even just our memory. Of yeah, that person. that's what it is. He's yeah. stuck at seven. Like the last <laughs> yeah. time I met him, he's yeah. seven in my mind so forever now. Be seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as you were saying, um, you know, the numbers have increased and perhaps that's because of awareness. Perhaps that's because we have better tools for screening, things like that. But the students with disabilities as a whole being served in public schools has jumped in the last 20 years, um, just like those autism numbers that Heather just shared. 40%, which is almost half of public schools struggle to find educators for special education. And I think that really illustrates how difficult um, these positions are um, to, to keep staff there, to recruit um, staff who have the education, the experience they need in order to um, do their job, but also perhaps they also don't have the support. And so um, educators have reported feeling unprepared for how to effectively educate students with varying disabilities. And you can imagine, I mean, like, it's not just one disability, right? Yeah. And like, they have to tailor 
like what they're doing and how they're supporting each student each individual yeah yeah and like that's tough like you can't be an expert in everything no I mean we we speak publicly we provide education we do presentations and we try to be aware of certain things right like colors we're using fonts we're using we're trying to be as accessible to everyone but we were not in doing ASL interpretation, right? I mean, and there's a variety of different things that we're just unable to do. Yeah. Like the closed captioning. Yeah. Like the transcript of our podcast. Yeah. Like we would do these things, but we do not have the capacity currently. No. Now, you know, the argument could be we need to make that a priority, which absolutely. Sure. I still do not have enough staff. Or funding or to funding. hire. Yeah. To do it, now we could make it into, like, a, an internship opportunity, sure. Um, it's a lot of front-loaded training. It is. It's a lot of front-loaded training. Um, so, again, like, we, we, I think that's a capacity problem. I think so, too. But I also think, I'm guessing schools run into that, too. I don't know how they couldn't, especially if you have a special ed classroom of, say, I don't know, 15 kids. Those are 15 different learners and they all need adaptations in some way to get the same information. Right. It feels honestly impossible with just like a couple of aides maybe and a teacher. And honestly, that would be a more well-staffed classroom if you had a couple of aides and a teacher with 15 kids. They have, they have, they're being asked something unaskable, I think. It's just unattainable. You're not going to be able to provide the perfect level of education and care for such a diverse population. Right. And and another worry educators have is about giving a disproportionate amount of time to their students with disabilities than those without. So they're holding these worries. They're trying to balance time. They're trying to tailor support Mm -hmm. and care. Like it's just they're they're asked a lot. They're asked too much, truly. Yeah. Yeah. And. So in a recent study, more than half of teachers said that they want more tech support for students with disabilities. So, of course, that doesn't shock me. Yeah, and if you can imagine being an educator without the tech supports in place in order to educate the students you have in your class, that's really frustrating, mm-hmm. too, because you know that you're not getting through yeah. in, in the best way possible to your student, and you just don't have what you need. Yeah, we want you to to accomplish this goal, but we're not going to give you the things you need to do it, and then we're going to be mad at you. And that's just that you're not accomplished. Yeah, it's absolutely unreasonable. It's a toxic work environment, I'm uh-huh. sure, in many cases. Yeah, I yeah. mean, educating right now as a whole for general ed is a struggle, and they're being asked to do too much. I can only imagine what the burden and the load on those special ed teachers is. Yeah. Thankfully, the paraprofessionals I know help, but we are in desperate need of them as well. We don't have the the number of paraprofessionals that we need either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and <laughs> I, I think what we're saying leads into this next piece that, like, educators develop negative attitudes, which, okay, so if you think about HR and you think about even looking at a job description and looking at job responsibilities and being asked too much of, right? And like not being given the tools to that you need to succeed mm-hmm. in your job, job duties yeah. and things. Um, it's no wonder that people like educators or anybody in this situation develop negative attitudes, right? Yeah. So they're developing negative attitudes toward educating students with disabilities because they don't feel supported in their work. So then yep. I think resentment builds. And I think yes. sometimes resentment is... Um, misplaced sure I mean I feel like resentment often is in a variety of situations and and sometimes you know like the students may bear the brunt of some of the frustration and I'm I I mean I understand it because that happens um but like these educators need so much support they need like the tools in order to fulfill their job duties in the best way possible so that they because you want to go home at the end of each day and you're like I did the best I could today yeah right I did more good than bad today yeah I you know reached some students or we had you know a success today but like a lot of them I'm sure are going home with 
feeling they had no successes that day and not at any fault to their person right but because they had more students and not enough support right to do what they needed to do yeah I mean I would be livid as I mean I know that the profession loses um, educators quite often and I suspect this is why yeah yeah so we, this is our oppression or anti-oppression season. So we want to just make the connections um, to disability and marginalization and oppression. I, in doing some of this research, I just like, I put it into Google, right? Like oppression, disability. Like I just wanted to see what some of the things would come up. And like every single one said at like the first sentence was people with disabilities are the one of the most marginalized populations in mm. the United States repeatedly, like site after site after site. And so then, of course, I mean, I was looking at information for this anyways, but I started looking into why is this like their leading statement? Essentially, it's because every single day, nearly every moment they are facing barriers and obstacles that limit their ability to enjoy life in the way that they desire to and a lot of their basic human rights are going unmet as Mm. a result of having a disability additionally as someone with disability uh some disability advocates have said they feel frustrated because they're constantly underestimated Mm. people think they can't do certain things and the problem is it's like no I absolutely can do those things I need this accommodation or this aid or support or whatever it's like I'm I'm capable that's not the problem the problem is I don't have the things I need to access my abilities essentially Mm -hmm. Um, their needs are overlooked constantly and some of this is intentional I'm sure but I think a lot of it is if you don't have a disability or a specific disability you're not going to think of the ways you would need to accommodate for someone I know Melissa was just at a great conference um, a sex ed conference and was taken aback essentially by the ASL um, and being a deaf person and trying to learn and teach sex ed. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say any more about that? It was just really interesting because this was the opening keynote. And I think too, that's why it was so, so, so striking. Mm -hmm. Um, I know my mind was blown, but this was given by a deaf person and, um, ASL interpretation was provided by the speaker um, and we were receiving the interpretation through the interpreter, sure, which was striking. But, yeah, because it's yeah. a different balance for sure. Yeah. Very cool though. Yes. Very, very, very cool. But, but yeah. Like you were mentioning before we started like a handful of things that you just hadn't even thought of and not because, yeah, again, like, not like you're a bad person. You just... No are not deaf or acquainted with the needs of people who have hearing disabilities. Right. And like even mentioning that, you know, we received the the speech through an interpreter, like that that interpreter is interpreting. Yes. What is being communicated to them. And so we are receiving the message through that filter. Mm-hmm. And, and to reverse that, like that, you know, this speaker, you know, when she was younger, she really wanted to be in sex ed. She was so excited. Yeah. Came into the, you know, front of the class, sat down. And her interpreter, like, didn't want to do some of the signs for um, what was being taught Mm -hmm. in sex ed that day because of the other kids. Yeah. And it's like, uh, nope. That it's not for the other kids. This is they're for prioritizing her education. The other kids at this point. Yeah, yeah, but then she was unable to receive the words or mm-hmm. the, and that some of the words in sex ed, like ASL, is constantly catching up. Sure. To our language, sure. um, at least in English, mm-hmm. is what I can say. But like, and I, I think it's it should be said too that like, I think it's something that people consider a given that um, people who are deaf can just automatically read lips, but like they've never heard those sounds. Yeah. Depending on their hearing disability. Right. And so it's, it's just really tough. And, 
there were just there's so much more that I never considered and I was like my mind was blown open for accessibility mm-hmm. which is why I mentioned the transcript for the podcast yeah. and like all these things that and our social media with the content descriptions like these are things that like have been in the back of my mind but I'm like oh, we just don't have the capacity right but mm-hmm. like and I and I still think that but like I feel like I need to make sure I prioritize it somehow. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what exactly that looks like in this moment. Right. But at least we're talking about yeah. it. And now it's at the front of our minds. Yes. I, I just was, I think it just really illustrates how if we don't, if we're not familiar, you know, a close friend, a family member, or ourselves are not experiencing those particular types of disabilities, it is difficult to use a disability lens um, when you're applying really anything. Because truthfully, we should be able to adapt everything to meet the needs of people with disabilities. But in practice, that is very far from the truth. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a resource thing. It's a capacity thing. It's not oftentimes I don't, well, oftentimes I don't think it's because people are like trying to make life harder for people with disabilities. But we can barely meet, you know, our expectations as it is. Sure. I I think, too, like, because we're saying, you know, that this is the most marginalized population mm-hmm. and, and we are going to be talking about how they are the most susceptible um, and vulnerable population. Susceptible sounds so wrong. Well, vulnerable um, because of the marginalization, yeah. which is society's fault, not oh, absolutely. their fault. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely that um, they are more likely by several times um, likely to be the victim of domestic or sexual violence. I'm just like, we've got to think about this as an agency. We've got to think about this better as a movement. We do. We do. And again, with a lot of the oppression and isms, the burden for change is placed on the 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 person experiencing the oppression and marginalization, which is outrageous. We have under-resourced them. We have treated them like garbage. And now we're putting additional weight on them to educate and change society. Right. Also, like, figure out how to make your life, you know, you're able to do things in your regular life, like just going to the doctor and cooking yourself food. But also, here's the burden of society marginalizing you yeesh yeah i think um it's pretty clear society doesn't prioritize people with disabilities Uh, repeatedly clear yes uh we ran into an incident incident there was a fire in a building um with a group of folks that we work with a lot and there are several disabled folks like mobility disabled they had wheelchairs walkers they couldn't do stairs right they're not on the first floor. They were on the third floor, the sixth floor, et cetera. And they were told to shelter in their units for a fire. And I guess what like they would have done like if the fire had spread was they would have done like this sort of slide thing that goes up to their window mm. and they would have to slide down. Like how would they get? the window well i was thinking about one person in particular she's in a wheelchair because she has severe stability issues she gets like dizzy and vertigo a lot so like i would be afraid she'd just fall out the window off the side of the slide yeah yeah i just these are the kinds of things that you know really really bother me like we shouldn't be worried that our friends with mobility issues are going to die in a fire because there's not an adequate escape um, route for them. And like, I I, I don't want to get too into it, but like there's got to be policies or something, but I can't imagine that building could pass inspections. No. You, so it's clear that it isn't prioritized essentially. Um, I'll try not to continue on that because I'm still very grumpy about it. No, you should be. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I like, I'm also grumpy. I know. I'm just like perplexed. I'm like, how how in the world I agree. did this pass any inspection? Yeah, because like especially the number of folks who have mobility problems right. that are living in that building. Yeah, it's like it's a big number. So we need to be doing something, and nobody is. Nobody's doing anything. 
Um, so I want to talk about how they're routine, routinely denied access to the same kind of support and opportunities that non-disabled folks are able to access. So things that I'm thinking of are like extracurricular activities, sports, like your high school doesn't usually have like wheelchair basketball or adapted athletics in some way. Sure, there's Special Olympics, but that's some big like international, like you may not actually be able to participate in that. It is just not accessible. We don't, I don't think we have any community leagues or programs locally, like at the Y. I can't think of any at least. So they're just constantly left out Mm -hmm. because we haven't considered how to include them. Um, The links to oppression are also in our attitudes towards people um, and students with disabilities. Like we mentioned, the educators are having a hard time. And so some educators and caregivers are going to expect that their students with disabilities are going to be low achieving, that they are going to display inappropriate behaviors. And when other people are putting those expectations on you, especially as a young person, you tend to internalize those behaviors. Mm -hmm. So we could actually be causing the low achieving, causing um, these self-esteem, self-worth issues just by these sort of in these, these behave, these thoughts that educators, caregivers, et cetera, have. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, sorry. I lost my train of thought. Students with disabilities also have reported that they feel alienated, uh, by teachers and peers, which is heartbreaking. I, I understand peers, I don't think it's great, but I expect it, I guess. And in an education and like students all together, there are going to be kids who just don't get it, who aren't going to ask you to come play on the the swings, et cetera, Mm -hmm. because they don't understand they're kids. But the adults in those situations should really be working on being inclusive and adapting what they're doing so that we can let our kids with special needs or disabilities be included in all the things their peers are included in. Yeah, and I think, too, the adults can help facilitate that inclusion. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I'm just thinking, like, I had a field trip when I was little. It's in third grade, and we had a little girl who used a wheelchair, and she couldn't come on the field trip because where we were going, her wheelchair wouldn't be able to be used. I, I And the thing is, is, like, I think if that's the case, then, like, you go where all of your students can Oh, Oh, I agree with you. Yeah. And belong. Yeah. No, I completely agree. But this was the field trip they did every year and they weren't going to change it or adapt it for one student. I don't think that's right, but I understand why it happens when we don't have the support and resources available to the educators. Yeah, that's so true. Well, in, and you know, attitudes lead to behaviors and we end up with things like bullying behaviors when there's not that connection or understanding of what another person is going through. Um, And students with disabilities experience more bullying than their peers. Um, Sadly, their vulnerabilities make them easy targets. Yep. Um, And of course, this can cause long-term negative impacts to mental health, emotional health, you know, and we know that mental health impacts physical health as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it just compounds um, not only health, but just like experiencing bullying like that. Like that hurts. It's going to harm your self-worth and your self-esteem. Yeah. It's going to make achieving um, academic goals more difficult mm-hmm. for anyone, whether you have a disability or not. If you're being bullied, you're not going to like be as successful as you may have been without that bullying impacting your mental health. Right. And that bullying, right? So the definition that we operate under is that, you know, the person is, um, on it's, it's unfair one-sided and it keeps happening. So this is like more than once, right? This is a pattern of abuse, just like domestic violence is a pattern of abuse and it's on purpose. And so like, this isn't just like your one-off, like, um, (laughs) you say something horrible, yeah, oops, sorry. And then you do better. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not what we're talking about. Um, 
just this ongoing stuff. And so again, like this is trauma upon trauma. So this is like, I use the word compounded. I'm not really sure if that's what I'm looking for, but it's just on top of each other. Um, and like one trauma can remind you of the last trauma, you know? And so it's just, and, and you can see why this would commonly cause negative outcomes at school. Um, and, and this would increase absenteeism. Um, you know, when you don't want, to go somewhere because you're going to be bullied like Mm -hmm. you're going to struggle you might be acting out as a young person because you don't want to go or like and and becoming as like a caregiver might see like more difficult yeah uh to get out the door or yeah whatever it is it's just it is heartbreaking I know we keep using that word but it is um so in order to reduce the stigma, I we, it's important to integrate students with disabilities into regular education. Like the more exposure someone has, the more they can connect with that person, the more understanding can increase and, and you become more familiar mm-hmm. with that person yeah. and get to know their needs and how you can be a part of that rather than outside of it. Like, like it's not thinking oh, I don't have what they need, so I can't help them. Right. So why be in relationship with them? It's like, no, like, why don't you get to know them and see how you fit together? Absolutely. But I can see why people stay away, like back off, because they don't know. Yeah, and especially with young people, there's a fear of the unknown. Yes. Uh, And, like, we need to start pushing, not pushing, encouraging <laughs> yeah um young people to be curious and kind when they are confronted with people with disabilities right like I know I saw some meme you know a mom was in the store somebody was using a wheelchair and the kid said mom why why is that person in a wheelchair and the mom said well you can ask them if they'd like to talk about it with you and so the little kid was just like, hey, can I ask you why you're in a wheelchair? And the person was like, oh, yeah, go ahead. And they had a little discussion and everybody walked away feeling seen mm. as well as like now this young person has a new set of skills and is going to think about that interaction in yeah. the future. Absolutely. You know, oh, I love that. It was such a short little thing. It was probably yeah. three minutes in the grocery store. Yeah. It impacted everyone's life that day in a positive way. Yeah. Oh, I love that that um spirit of curiosity. Yeah. And that and that that curiosity that this integration can reduce the amount of bullying students with disabilities face and like we said, this benefits everyone. The um the peers who are not not identifying as disabled. It's it's impacting them as well. It's an empathy building practice yeah it is a compassion building practice I would say it's even a problem solving practice uh, particularly in like how do I get my friend with these special needs integrated into my play or my activity right so now the kids themselves are even trying to think about workarounds how do we do this how do we do that like you're also learning problem solving in addition to these other things yeah it's have it's you, so beneficial. Have you ever seen um, a dance done on stage where, like, they are incorporating people with disabilities or people in wheelchairs? I haven't. It's beautiful. I'm like, sure. there's some really cool things that can be done. But that's the thing, right? Like, I haven't even seen it. Didn't even know it existed. <laughs> <laughs> we should have more of these things front and center. Yeah. Because then people feel seen. They don't feel alienated. They don't feel isolated. And isolation is a tool of abuse and a tool of oppression. Mm -hmm. Because when you are cut off, when you are isolated, you don't know what other opportunities might be out there. You don't have connections to provide support. um, And that's going to affect you in a variety of different ways. Yeah. We always say, you know, isolation is one of the things that an abusive individual will do to keep someone from leaving an unhealthy and abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And this kind of oppression of people with disabilities is the exact same thing. It's just a larger scale. It's a huge population of human beings rather than one person in a you know a household. Wow. 
Um, so of course kids are going to face kids with disabilities face a lot of, um, a lot of alienation and isolation in pretty much every area of their life. I'm thinking if it, it, you know, you, your kid in your wheelchair isn't going to be able to go out and play, um, in the snow and make snow angels and run around and those kinds of things. And I think using a wheelchair in the snow can be pretty difficult if you don't have the right, um, modifications to your Mm -hmm. wheelchair. Yep. So like just one instance, like, this somebody, you know, looking out the window, watching all the neighborhood kids building snowmen and they're stuck inside. And again, not because of any other reason except for the fact that they have a disability. That's going to cause a lot of um, unpleasant and negative feelings within oneself and can really damage mental health mm-hmm. um, if this is a consistent thing. And at schools, depending on the school, they may not have opportunities even to interact with the other kids. Because depending on, you know, are they in full special ed classrooms? Are they in regular ed? If they're in special ed, a lot of times they're not interacting with the rest of the school. They're doing things on a different schedule. I've seen schools where they're like a whole wing is just special ed. So there's no regular ed kids there at all. Right. Of course, that's going to increase alienation. It's going to increase misinformation. Mm -hmm. It is going to encourage bullying when you are isolating a group of people on purpose what of course that's going to lead to bullying kids are fantastic at finding ways to be mean to each other but this is it's so obvious um that it causes more harm than good um and then i was also thinking about like the programming for kids with disabilities i was listening to a podcast today um about someone who is a wheelchair user who is at uc berkeley And they have, like, one of the best disability education programs. Their campus is not made for people with wheelchairs. They have spaces they can't access. Um, They can't go to events. There are a whole host. She's just, like, listing all the things. And this is supposed to be an institution that is more forward thinking and more inclusive. I know. So, like, I can only imagine that across, you know, our publicly our public schools that are funded yeah even more poorly than the university of california and berkeley which is a very well-funded institution right with adults who can advocate for themselves unlike small children who don't know how or don't even know that they are allowed to right um so another one i just wanted to mention this is something that for us is particularly important is a lot of the special ed kids are left out of healthy relationship and sex education courses, which is something we go into classes to do. We don't have a program or a curriculum developed for young people. There's something developed specifically for adults with um, intellectual disabilities, but there is not uh, something developed for young people. Yeah, we pretty much have to outsource that yep. um, and like just kind of bring some resources together. We're going to be bringing some people together. I think that I mentioned that like a couple uh, I think so. <laughs> episodes ago, that's something I was excited about, but like... Yeah, just just bringing special ed teachers and life skills teachers together and social workers and health teachers. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get these body safety lessons to yeah. you know, the students in your classes? Because uh, right now, like, I don't feel like we have the tools um, or experience to get them the message they need in the mm-hmm. way they need it. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's the same thing that the classroom teachers are facing too with all of their curriculums, not just, you know, sex ed, which is what we are looking at. Right. Right. So you can, as you can imagine with a lot of these barriers and because they are experiencing oppression, like there's an economic impact here. Um, According to the UNICEF report, um, poverty is both a cause and a consequence. And we know this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Poverty is one of the root causes of oppression, Mm -hmm. but it's also a consequence of the systems in place. It feeds itself almost. Yeah. Yeah. How do you break out of a cycle that feeds itself? Yeah, exactly. It's like something revolutionary at each other. Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, 
do you remember like the Occupy movement and everything like yeah. that? Like yeah. I feel like that was trying to really upset some systems yeah. and it's like, <laughs> I don't know, just like stuff like that. Just, it feels like it peters out. Like, it does. Because I mean, people get tired. So tired. Yep. And the people that are putting in the work are the ones that have been harmed and are being harmed. So they're going to be tired and exhausted and broken down more quickly. Well, because they started with less, you know, energy and oomph behind them on account of the other things they're already navigating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So youth with disabilities experience higher rates of poverty than their peers. Um, So (laughs) for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. 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 And then you have the caregivers of the youth with disabilities, which, you know, depending on how much care an individual needs, um, they may have given up their job Mm -hmm. in order to stay at home and care for Mm -hmm. their young person. Um, So caregivers may have to sacrifice paid work. And um, the additional supports and health care needs can be very expensive. Yep. Perhaps not covered by insurance. A lot of them aren't, yeah. That's draining. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, like... You may already be struggling financially and then it's like, well, here's all these medical bills. Here are all these things that will help your child succeed, but you they're not covered by insurance. They aren't free. So now you also you have more expenses. And of course, if there are hospital bills or medical bills that are included, wheelchairs are not cheap. Things that work well and are easy and are adapted to youth and young people or different environments, those are going to be expensive. And kids grow out of these, you know, actual like physical support or mobility type aid things. Their bodies are going to grow and they're going to need new ones all the time, mm-hmm. just like clothes. So, yeah, the fin- the financial burden is extremely heavy on um, households with folks that have disabilities. Mm -hmm. And then you think about just the way in which, you know, we were talking about the education in the classrooms and perhaps not having the tools we need to educate them in the way they need. And then, as you say, right, they grow. They Mm -hmm. grow into adults with disabilities. And, And then they may have more difficulty finding a job that pays a living wage because maybe they haven't had the chance to even have the education and skills built up that they could have gotten if yeah. the the educators had the tools. I I don't know. Yeah, I I again in that podcast, um, she talked about retention rates at mm-hmm. the college. The lowest retention rates were students that identified as having disabilities. So now because you're of second, the accessibility yep. and like lack of accommodations. Yep. Yeah, that makes total sense. And that's in higher ed. Like that's absolutely happening in high school. So you may have students who aren't finishing school. And then that's a huge barrier to getting wage jobs or paid jobs. And I'm thinking of things like fast food, right? That's where where a lot of that's going to be. Right. That may not be an option based on the person's, you know, disabilities. Mm-hmm. Or grocery store clerk. Like or, a whole bunch of things. Yeah. 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 Or how do they get to work? Exactly. <laughs> you know, like if they don't have a vehicle that's adapted to whatever their needs are or they're unable to drive as a result. Now we also have to find them transportation, make sure they get to and from work. Right. It's hard for them to find and maintain a, a job that pays enough for them to live off of. Mm-hmm. And again, no fault of their own. No. So let's put together some of these pieces, the disability piece, the oppression and marginalization piece, and look at how that increases risk of abuse. And when we're talking about higher risk, I want to remind everyone, this is again, not the fault of the individual, the stigma, the discrimination, and the oppression are what have increased these folks' um, risk of abuse. So stigma, powerlessness, isolation, anytime we have all of these things together in such high numbers, you're going to see higher experiences of abuse in that particular population. Um, And this isn't really a lot different um, when we're talking about abuse risk um, in young people for adults. They are both at higher risk um, of experiencing abuse. 
anytime we have a vulnerability, whatever that might be, it could be a disability. It could be someone who grew up in the foster care system. It could be someone who has um, really low self-esteem or self-worth. Those are vulnerabilities. Abusive individuals see that as an easy person to abuse because they can exploit that vulnerability and manipulate them in ways they might not be able to with someone who has a different or lesser uh, vulnerability. Right. And so abuse can occur anywhere, um, at school, at home, at care centers and institutions or on the streets. Um, you know, as you can imagine, many people with disabilities are homeless. I mean, you've seen experiencing it. homelessness. Yeah. Um, those living in care centers or institutions are particularly vulnerable to exploitation. Like this is, they, they depend on the people caring for them in these facility facilities. And, um, this is like their main home. Mm-hmm. Like the, so, um, obviously, you know, they're going to be bathing here. They're going to to be in the um, bathroom they're living here yeah. <laughs> like they're having relationships here um and then people with disabilities may experience forms of abuse that occur at higher rates for people with disabilities or the elderly and so this would include things like stealing or withholding social security disability checks invalidating or minimizing a disability like for instance someone says like oh you're just faking that like, you don't really have a problem mm-hmm. doing this thing. Like, you just want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, this is just an excuse. Absolutely. Yeah, which, um, that's, that's, that's very That's that invisible disability yes. kind of thing. Yes, When you can't see it, well, I mean, if you can't see it, you can't support it in any way. But also, you're just not aware. And unless you're wearing a badge or, like, a shirt that says, hey, I have this disability, People just aren't aware, so they can't appropriately support you. Sure. I would hope that once the person discloses that they don't hear, nah. I I I hope so, but as a person who has an invisible illness, that's not really the case. Even the medical profession will say things like, oh, it's all in your head, or your blood work looks fine, so you must be fine. Like, there's a whole lot of medical trauma, I think, that and a medical abuse that these folks experience as well. Yeah, and that really impacts them mentally. How could it not? Yeah, yes. Um, so some other forms of abuse that may be experienced at a higher rate includes sexual abuse related to being unable to provide verbal consent, um, withholding, damaging, or destroying assistive devices or medications, threatening to out your disability to others if it's a non-visible or um, disability or it carries some kind of social stigma, um, which, you know, threatening to out people, that carries across so many marginalized identities. Um, so I guess it's unsurprising that it's here on this list, but it's just so sad, like that that knowledge is used over, which that's part of bullying, right? It's Mm -hmm. power using power over (laughs) to your advantage. I'm thinking someone who has, say, a personality disorder, and sometimes that carries uh, a negative stigma with it, the personality disorders. So like I could see a partner saying, well, I'm going to tell your work that you have borderline personality disorder or that you have diagnosed, been diagnosed as a narcissist or whatever, like that could be very damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, It shouldn't be, but it can be. Yes. Thanks for sharing that. Um, So uh, two more forms that I'm going to mention today are harming or threatening to harm your service animal, which, oh, I can't, I just can't even. Yeah. But that, this is something that's common in I domestic know. violence, yeah. period. Yeah. Like whether you have a disability or not, this is a reason why many people stay in abusive relationships or abusive home mm-hmm. lives mm-hmm. is because um, th- they have threatened to harm their animal. Yeah. And they can't take perhaps like whatever their safety plan is to get out of that situation, like maybe they can't take the animal with them. Yeah. And so they're deciding to stay for because they can't take the animal. I've actually been speaking with a survivor who's not in our service area, um, who's been in shelter somewhere else without her service dog. Oh, my gosh. Because they can't support her service dog in the shelter. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Big time yikes. 
uh, again, outside of our service area. Right. Okay. So it's unfortunate like that we aren't able, because like, that's not something that, that we would do. I don't know if it's legal or not. I, I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. But I also don't know what the situation, I don't know more about the background, but I do know that um, we've been providing her with some over the phone uh, support because okay. imagining how hard that could be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I mean, and so this abuse, again, not surprising that it's on this list, but it's horrific, mm-hmm. like harming or threatening to harm your service animal. So that's just like a whole nother level. Yep. Of like, that's an extension of you that's helping, like, like you were talking about earlier, Heather, like the the tools to be able to access your abilities, right? And so that's the service animal for you. And then if you're threatening to harm that, you are threatening my to, my autonomy to, my, yeah, you're essentially everything. threatening my person absolutely yeah. like that's an extension of me even more so than it is we see in a, you know in a abusive households partners will threaten you know pets that are not service animals yeah. and that's still a huge you know it, it's gut-wrenching and people stay even more so if the animal is um a service animal and helps you with your daily living mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah um, and then using your disability to justify an abusive partner's behavior. Yeah. Like, if you weren't so hard to deal with. Exactly. I wouldn't have to be this way. Yeah. Cool. Great. So I'm going to give you a little bit of data that's going to be hard to swallow here. Children with disabilities are more than three times as likely to experience abuse. It increases to four times as likely if the children are living in care homes. And the abuse can be a variety of things such as sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, neglect, maltreatment, emotional, verbal, digital, of course. Like the list goes on, but it's not limited to like one particular uh, method or type of abuse. And we know um, as many as 68%. So... More than two-thirds of women, uh, adolescents with intellectual disabilities are abused before they reach the age of 18. So more than half of the females with disabilities experience some form of abuse before they get to 18. Uh, Children that are nonverbal or have a hearing deficit um, or deaf have some of the highest rates of abuse amongst children with disabilities. And this is for a couple reasons. One, they cannot usually provide verbal consent um, and reporting would be extra difficult for them um, if they're nonverbal or they have hearing disabilities. Um, And I also want to mention, and I know we say this all the time, these statistics are just what we know of. These are just the numbers that someone filled out a survey or there was a report or they got help somewhere for the people that aren't reporting and aren't help seeking they're not counted in this data. And we know for abuse, that's pretty common. We don't see a lot of, uh, we see much smaller numbers of reporting that are actually occurring out in the real world. And I just wanted to point out too, I think it's one in three or one in four uh, female adolescents Mm -hmm. uh, before the age of 18 Mm -hmm. are, um, like that's that's like 33%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For, like child sexual abuse, right? And you said as many as 68. If not percent. more. Yeah, like right. that's the low end of that guess. Mm-hmm. So you can see even in those numbers yeah. how much more likely I'd it say is. it's probably more like 75 to 80%. Oh. But again, that's a guess. Right. Because we don't have the reports. We're just knowing how many people have disabilities. And as you said, you know, it's even more likely to happen if they're in care homes. And we know that um, it's like any form of abuse is more likely to happen with somebody, you know. Mm -hmm. Yep. And any institutionalized setting, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So why, Mm -hmm. (laughs) why are they abused at such high rates? Um, Their reports of abuse are often dismissed or seen as not reliable. They're not believed. 
Um, and, and this works to an abusive person's advantage. Uh, perhaps they have a c- communication barrier and they don't have the tool they need, or maybe it's been taken away from them. So they are maybe like the, with a physical, like a mobility um, disability, they might not be able to reach the phone like it's been taken away. Yeah, placed in a place in a, in a space they can't access. Right. Right. Um, Children who need assistance with tasks like using the toilet or washing are exceptionally vulnerable to abuse. Um, There's just more opportunity. Uh, Janine Sanders mentioned this in our interview with her uh, last season, and she is currently working on a book to adapt body safety rules for those with disabilities. As a result of her daughter's position, right? Her adult daughter works with children with disabilities and brought this, you know, to light to Jenny. And she was like, as Janine does, she was like, well, I'm going to do something about it. That's right. (laughs) I'm going to write a book. Yeah. Like that's how she teaches this through stories. We're very excited when, when that comes out. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and as you can imagine, too, like with these barriers, uh, children and youth with disabilities may not be able to defend themselves or recognize the abuse is not OK. Maybe them, they've been taught by their abusers that this is just normal behavior, like this is what is OK and expected in relationships between authority figures and children and youth and that they have to comply. Yeah. I mean, we do that to little kids anyways. Yeah. You listen to the adults. You do right. what the adults say. Like we, I mean, we don't say that right. because we know that's a great way for abuse to be covered up. But I think that in a lot of cases, especially when they have like uh, caregivers that come into the home, like professional caregivers, right? they're just taught you comply. You do what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, caregivers experience higher levels of stress when providing care to kids with disabilities. Um, and I think I think it's because we well, of the things that we've mentioned about not having the tools and resources to complete the job duties. Um, I think it's less the person oh, yeah. that they're caring for. No, totally. And more than, yeah, no. It's the it's the structure resources. of society that makes them stress. Right. And we just don't if everything was accessible and they had all this help, their level of stress would be much lower. Yeah. And then of course anytime you are more stressed there's a higher likelihood that yeah. you're going to blow up or you're yep. going to do unhealthy behaviors that hurt someone. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that too, why are people with disabilities as abused at much higher rates? They have multiple marginalized identities and the more marginalized identities that you stack upon each other, you, <sighs> the rates of abuse go up. Yep. Um, and women report more experiences of abuse. Um, so a girl with disabilities has increased uh, risk of because of her gender, because of her disability status. Um, but again, like this is because our statistics that we have like are showing that women are reporting um, men might be reporting but maybe at lower rates and and there's other things connected with that too i know we haven't really uh, discussed that on this podcast no we haven't but you know again like (laughs) a stigma on top of all of these barriers that they face sure and like if they have a marginalized ethnicity perhaps you know they are latinx maybe they are a member of the lgbtqia plus like that just keeps increasing the likelihood that they are going to experience abuse. Yes. And I know that when we talked with the LGBTQIA plus youth, um, we discovered that a lot of their exploration came from having some kind of neurodiversity Mm -hmm. or some kind of disability that they were um, exploring and navigating and they were exploring their gender identity or sexual orientation at the same time. And it was so linked. And yep. I don't think, like, I certainly didn't expect that. I, no, I, guess I didn't either. My brain was expanded that day that we talked with them. Yeah. Um, the last few years, really, uh, because of the work that we do here, yeah. I have seen more of this. Um, I'm queer and I'm neurodiverse. Like, 
I would I would love to explore the more. I think it's very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm sad that that means they're going to experience more oppression, but I love the way that their brains are working. Yes. And I, I I'm very curious, and I would love to. I wish we had time to speak more, um, specifically with young people experiencing or who are LGBTQIA plus as well as um have some sort of disability as well. Yeah. But we are only two people. I know. <laughs> um, so I wanted uh, to mention before we finish up here that seeking help for abuse is also riddled with obstacles and barriers for folks that have disabilities. Um, if you're a child, there's already more obstacles. Kids really struggle with reporting um, for a variety of reasons. A lot of times they don't want to upset their caregivers by telling them about the abuse because they they have compassion and empathy for their caregivers um, and they're putting them their caregivers before themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already a barrier if it's a child, which we work on as educators. We tell we t- you, I, the first time I heard you say it was, what happens if that adult doesn't believe you? You go to the next adult. You go to the next adult. And I'm just like, I hate that we have to teach kids that. I know. I'm glad we do because it's needed, but it just bums me out. You but, know what bums me out even uh, more? What? Is that they have a backup plan yeah. already. Yeah. They had an answer for me. Yeah. They've already thought about this, of what's going to happen if this adult doesn't believe me. Because they were already like, go to the next one. <laughs> I'm like... Uh, like, yeah, I'm I glad guess. you know that, yeah. but like, I'm sad that you've already had to create a backup plan in your head because you you had that answer ready. I know because I'm sure in other instances there have been things where they're like, so and so, you know, took my pencil, and you know, they're like, well, you tend to lie, we're not, you know. And I hear that from teachers all the time. I do too. I heard it from the DCFS workers. <sighs> That child tends to tell stories. Oh yeah, I remember uh, one DCFS worker talking to me after us. It's uh, that's what I was thinking of. Center uh-huh. interview, and I was like, uh, "We we believe survivors here at Safe Journeys." <laughs> like, I, I don't amount, know how to respond to that. Like, the amount of times we have to say that is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know in our world that is a given, but it's not in the rest of the world, and it is so anger inducing oh absolutely there are so few things that cause me rage that's one of them yeah well it enrages me that we even have to have a start by believing campaign i'm like why but then i'm like oh right because you guys can't even handle yeah starting by believing right and i think that speaks then to how much more difficult it's going to be for a young person with a disability absolutely for it's difficult for a young person without a disability the disability is an added layer yep so a lot of times they're going to have to report to some sort of authority figure or care provider which in itself is hard and can be scary depending on the child and the caregiver they don't want to upset someone that they care for like we i had just mentioned and most people think children are unreliable you know before this position i would have agreed mm. i don't agree anymore I do see them playing with the truth, if you will. <laughs> but I think that is a like normal developmental stage as well. But like when it comes to abuse, I always am going to believe a child. Yes. Even if they're a whole a whole room of adults and caregivers are going, it's not true. I'm still gonna believe that child. And what's the like the risk of me believing them? It's just not like there isn't a risk like there's no risk factors that are increased because i believe this child anyways sorry i got a little it's okay got a little grumpy um so like i said lots of disability uh lots of dis- kids with disabilities have increased barriers and then there may be specific barriers related to a disability like we talked about with deaf children or children that are hard of hearing or nonverbal. They may not communicate well with other folks. They may not um, be able to access services that are provided in, you know, ASL, or perhaps they uh, require Braille, you know, resources, all sorts of things. We don't have them. I don't, yeah, I don't think we have a Braille resource. Well, ah, 
I think we have some sex ed. Yeah. Resources actually, but yeah, it's older. Um, But I also want to mention to like add on top of all of this, like some intersections of like immigrating from another country or being a refugee or seeking asylum. Which we're seeing obviously so much of. And coming here and having a disability like being deaf or hard Mm -hmm. of hearing, like you don't know ASL yet. So what are you going to do now? Right. Like, and that's where you need some, somebody like a deaf interpreter to help, help mm-hmm. through that. But Absolutely. it's like, but again, <laughs> it's just challenge on top somebody. of challenge. Yeah. 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 And paying that person, you know, it's the resources. Mm-hmm. But yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So that brings us to our conclusion for today. We're going to share our media we love, which is the book that I mentioned um, by Janine Sanders called Included. And it's a book for all children about inclusion, diversity, disability, equality, and empathy. And it focuses on showing kids that everyone is valuable and has worth. Um, and it really seeks to help reduce negative stereotypes of people with disabilities. And <laughs> uh, we really, we don't get kickbacks, <laughs> I swear, from promoting Janine Sanders' books. Um, and she's probably smiling. She's going to listen to this sure. since we'll tag her. Oh, for sure. Shamelessly. But, uh, but we... We adore Janine Sanders and we just are so grateful for all of the work that she does and the tools that she puts out there because this is stuff that educators can use. She makes it easy. Yeah. She really does. Which is fabulous. Like this is is what what we need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Like I would feel more comfortable being able to take that book and teach from it so that I would be able to you know give those body safety lessons or she has all these amazing additional resources on her site that support many of the books like discussion questions posters it's just it is so beneficial yeah and we cannot say her name enough because we just want (laughs) all the people to get her stuff and be able to use it and educate and keep kids safe yes so in a nutshell, we love you, Janine. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we thank you all for listening today and uh, encourage you to keep listening for any resources you may need. Look out for new podcasts every other Monday on anywhere that you can find your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Anchor FM, you name it. We're there. If you have any questions and we would love to hear from you, you can email us at saferjourneyspod at safejourneysillinois.org. You can also message us on social media. We have a Facebook and an Instagram that you can find us at. And let's talk about some resources for anyone who's experiencing abuse. If you happen to live in and around LaSalle or Livingston County in Illinois, please feel free to call Safe Journeys support line at 815-673-1555. 24-7, confidential, services are free. If you don't happen to be in our our area, there are two national hotlines that you can call for support. For sexual violence, you can call RAIN with two N's. That's the National Sexual Violence Hotline. Their phone number is 800-656-HOPE. They also have a live chat on their website if you're interested. And for domestic violence or intimate partner abuse, you can call the hotline, which is simply thehotline.org. And this is our national domestic violence hotline. And you can give them a call at 800-799-SAFE or chat live on the website. Thanks for listening.